This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. On today's episode, we are looking back at this year's Toronto Japanese Film Festival. The festival ran from June 16th to the 30th, and it celebrates the best Japanese films that are being shown either in Canada or internationally for the first time. This is the second year we have covered the fest after last year on episode 155, Toronto Japanese Film Festival, where we had special guest Naomi Wada-Platt come on and talk about the films. I once again had a fun time experiencing the best new films coming out of Japan, but how did you find this year's festival, Rachel? It was great. I actually got to go in person this year, which was incredible, uh, because last year, obviously, with COVID, everything was online. Um, So this year, I actually was able to go and watch, I think it was three movies in person um, at the, it's the, I'll get this correct, the Japanese Canadian Culture Culture Center. uh, I've seen photos of it. It looks really nice. It's a very, very cool building. So they do a lot of stuff inside, like a lot. That doesn't make sense. They do a lot of stuff inside. <laughs> they do like, they do, they have um, some martial arts lessons there. I know that there's like, there's a, they used to. So this was based off their website. I don't know if they they continued to do this post COVID, but they had um, like sushi making and like origami courses and things like that. Uh, they have a little museum as well inside. It's like, it's, it's very quaint, but it's a, it's a really cool place. And they seem to put on a lot of events um, for, you know, the Japanese community in Toronto and the film festival is good. Like they do it in this huge auditorium. Um, admittedly, the seats are not the most comfortable. And I did see people like the first film that I went to, I saw an older couple with seat cushions in a bag. <laughs> and I looked at them, I know, but I looked at them and I kind of thought, aren't they adorable? These older people bringing in seat cushions. But then I saw like everybody basically doing that. And I was like, oh, I'm the idiot here. And I didn't have a seat cushion. And it, they were kind of necessary. Um, but overall, like it, it was cool. Like it was very, very well run. And um, they had, you know, a pretty good turnout too, especially for, we'll talk about like towards the end, but like uh, it's a flickering life. Like that one, there was, I think it was nearly sold out. Um, They had, so they had a really, really good turnout um, to the festival and it's nice going back in person. Um, I say back, I'd never been before, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's nice to do things in person, like going to watch a movie. Yeah. I I wish I could have seen it in person. Obviously I'm not in Toronto anymore. I'm in Vancouver as (laughs) listeners probably know by now. Uh, So I only got to watch them from the comfort of my comfortable couch. Uh, So I don't know. I guess I had that going for me over you. I got to do that too, though, with some movies. So, you know, fair enough. I had best of both worlds. You just had (laughs) one world. This is what you get for going to the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, that is that is what I get. Uh, before we start, I, I definitely want to give a huge thank you to Virginia Kelly for uh, hooking us up with media passes and giving us access to all the great Japanese films that we were able to see this year. Now, Thanks let's get started. We, uh, we're we going to talk about uh, five movies today. Three of them we both saw, so we can actually have a proper discussion, whereas the other ones are just sort of briefly touching on it a little bit. So the main topic of today is going to be three films that we're going to be t- uh, discussing. And the first one is a movie called Midnight Swan, which is a very interesting film. Uh, and I'll read the IMDb plot summary for it. Uh, Nagisa is transgender. She grew up in Hiroshima as a man, but now lives in Shinjuku, Tokyo as a woman. Due to an incident, she begins to live with a middle school student, Ichika, who is a distant relative. Ichika has been neglected by her mother, Saori. From living in solitude by herself to now living with Ichika, Nagasi develops maternal instincts for the first time. 
So this is, you know, the, the plot summary is a little wordy, so it's a little, doesn't quite explain it. But um, you have Nagisa, who is working in some sort of a queer cabaret club where her and other trans women do this sort of uh, ballet dance recital thing. And then once they're done performing, they basically sort of, I don't want to call them escorts, but they keep the the clientele uh, happy by visiting them and sitting with them. And I'm guessing the clients are then buying them drinks and, and that's sort of how they make their money. And she ends up being sent. Uh, I assume it's her niece. That it, it's mm-hmm. sort of I, like this. The, An estranged niece. Yeah. 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 The, the wording of, of the plot summary is a little off, but her niece comes to live with her and basically is going through so much trauma. She's basically nonverbal and has a really hard time opening up. And Nagisa is not exactly welcoming to having someone living in her small one bedroom flat. And, uh, and, and her niece ends up, finding this ballet studio and ends up taking classes there. And that's how she kind of regains her confidence is able to open up. She makes some friends and her ballet teacher believes in her. And the fact that uh, her aunt is also a dancer, that's something that eventually brings them together. But it's also just very interesting because we don't really get a lot of queer stories coming out of Japan, especially transgender stories. Now, can we say that maybe if this movie was made in North America, it might have to have been a bit more delicate with the way of um, slurs and language and uh, casting may have been approached. Absolutely. But the fact that it was coming from Japan, it's a pretty landmark movie, I would say. And and one that I think mostly works pretty well, especially the performances, the two lead performances are, are very strong. What did you think of this one, Rachel? Yeah, I liked it. I, I thought it was um, it's it's very dramatic. I'll say that. Like, there are some moments of like, but I, I feel like that's Japanese cinema in general. They're very very dramatic yes. at times. Um, it's just kind of the style of the acting. But I overall, I I liked the movie, and I thought it was the thing that stood out to me was what, exactly what you said in that. You know, J- Japan is still a very conservative country um, in many ways. And the younger generation, I know when we were growing up, the younger generation was already starting to rebel against this idea of, you know, what what is a quote unquote proper individual, right? Like whether that's man or woman or whatever. Um, Asia in general is kind of behind the times when it comes to uh, queer issues so for a movie like this to come out in Japan specifically, uh, it's it's incredible. And I, I love it. And I think, you know, it's interesting what you say about if it was released in the West, it might, you know, it might be a bit more delicate in the slurs and things like that. I actually love that it's not because I feel like it's a bit more maybe realistic, like it's more to the point of of what they're trying to show, which is life is not always easy when when you um, aren't going down the quote unquote typical path of, of what, uh, you know, especially when it comes to sexuality and gender. So, you know, I, I, I like that it's very abrasive. I like that it, it doesn't have that filter. The casting is interesting. Um, it's, uh, Kusanagi is, is, uh, he's a cis man who was cast in the role as a transgender woman you know, it didn't really make it did, well from what I could see. I mean, I can't read Japanese, so maybe it did make a bigger stir than we realized. But you know, I didn't. I didn't really hear that too much coming out. It, maybe that's more of a Western issue um, as opposed to an international one. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was. It, it's a well done movie. 
it hits on a topic that I don't think we see too often, not just in Japan, but in Asia as in general as a continent. So it's, um, it's refreshing. And I like that they, they did a premiere here in Canada or in Toronto mm-hmm. rather. Well, to go on your point on the casting, it was only a few years ago that Eddie Redmayne won best actor for being in the yeah. Danish girl. So it's, it's not like we're, we're miles ahead in the way yeah. casting is done. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's like a whole other can of worms too, you know. When you talk about casting in this light, because yeah, it's a, it's, it's not um, to me. It's not like a very black and white issue. Like, just because you're not this doesn't mean you can't do that, right? Like, mm-hmm. and where do you kind of draw a line? But that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, yeah, and and it's <laughs> sort of interesting because there are there there's a, there's a moment there's a section in the film where uh, Nagasi feels that she can't live as a woman anymore. She's realizing that she isn't able to earn enough money to provide for both her and her niece while working mm-hmm. at this club. And she tries getting into sex work and is not into yeah. it right away, kind of gets uh, assaulted and is like, this is a no go for me. So she decides to try to get a job, but as a, her former male identity, which included chopping off her hair, uh, dressing in men's clothing, and going by uh, male pronouns and things like that. So, so there is a bit of a section where we see a quote unquote male performance. Uh, so, so maybe that's something they're looking for. I don't, I don't really know, but it's sort of interesting. This, this movie actually won best film at the Japanese Academy Awards last mm-hmm. year. So this is, a, this is a pretty big deal. I don't follow the sort of the Japanese movie news cycles and things like that. So I wasn't really aware of this movie, but when, uh, when I saw the lineup and, you know, you're reading all the, the press blurbs and I was like, Oh, and this movie won best film at the Japanese Academy Awards. I'm like, Oh, that's actually pretty interesting. This kind of makes me want to check it out. So that's why I checked it out. Uh, and I, I'm glad I did. I, and I think, I think maybe the, the highlights of this movie involves dance and, uh, yeah. the young girl who, who plays the niece was cast specifically because she is a uh, very highly regarded ballerina. She's not an actor. So the fact that she was able to turn in this fantastic and very layered and emotional performance while also being able to show that like <laughs> she basically has to act like a bad dancer for quite yeah. a bit of the movie where she doesn't really know what she's doing. But then by the end of it, she has to be this full blown quite literally, um, uh, the black swan or the white swan yeah. from Swan Lake, uh, you have to be able to do that. And that's one of the most complicated, difficult dances to perform a, as a dancer. And so they needed an actor to be able to do that as well. And, and she definitely nailed all of that. Yeah, that I completely agree with you. That was my favorite parts of the film were, were her, really. Um, the actress's mm-hmm. name is Misaki Hattori, uh, who played Achika. And I thought she was amazing. Like when I found out it, that was her first movie, like first acting role i thought i was really really impressed and one thing that i like and I, i'll give the credit to the director um it's uh eg uchida he you know let her look like a teenager because i find sometimes and this is probably like a very western movie thing but you know teenagers don't really look like teenagers anymore they just have you know they're very glammed up these days and they they just kind of look so i'm they're probably most of them are 20 which is why they look 20 um, but I like that Achika actually looked like a teenager. Like she, she, they didn't really put much makeup on her. They just let her be a kid. And I enjoyed mm-hmm. that. So 
Um, yeah, I, I love the dancing though. I thought she was incredible. And just even beyond the dancing, her acting was, was tremendous. I think the one last thing I kind of want to talk about, it's not necessarily a problem with the movie, but more of, uh, what the hell is going on in Japan? There is, a. Uh, a, a pivotal moment in the movie where uh, Achika and her her new friend uh, realize that she Achika needs some money oh. to pay for her her dance lessons, and so she takes her to I don't know this place where older men take photographs of young underage girls and to do private sessions. They want like either bathing suit or lingerie. Mm-hmm costumes for these kids and i'm watching this like what the hell is going on over there did, yeah did creep you out as much as it creeped me out i mean it, it creeped me out it, it, is it bad to say i'm not surprised <laughs> like it's it it's 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 disgusting right like it's terrible but again like another one thing that i'll notice i i note about japanese movies in general is they do have a very long runtime. Mm-hmm. um they incorporate a lot of stuff, especially dramas. Like they throw in a lot of different issues. Um, and I, I thought this was an interesting one to look at because, you know, they're teenagers. And so they're looking at the life of two teenagers. So a chica and her friend. And, you know, there is, because it's set, it's a contemporary film. So it's set in today and they incorporate phones and social media and they want to show kind of the very, the danger of that like and and it's mm-hmm. it's very troubling it's very you know there there's another movie that i saw during the festival you didn't get to catch it but you're going to catch it for fantasia which is called baby assassins and we can talk about it then but they have not exactly the same thing but something adjacent to that in that film um in terms of like using young girls in a service type issue and not necessarily like a sexual thing well it's kind of sexual but like not not sex work i should put it that way so yeah it's it's i don't know it's it's um it is disturbing it's creepy but yeah i mean it doesn't shock me that that kind of stuff go, goes on and i think you know sometimes i think we we look at those as being like what's going on over in japan i wouldn't be surprised if something like that was happening here as well like in north america do you know like that's what the movie zola kind of was bringing to light was People always think of sex trafficking, human trafficking as an international issue, not a not a North mm-hmm. American issue. But yeah. actually, it's in our own backyard as well. And we just don't know it sometimes because, you know, we live in a, a very kind of privileged time. And well, I mean, the characters in this film are fairly privileged themselves. But, yeah, I think sometimes we, we don't think it's in our own backyard, but it wouldn't shock me to find out mm-hmm. that it was. Yeah, absolutely. I w- I'm not saying it's uh, it makes the movie worse. It was just like a very like what yeah. the hell is going on sort of moment uh, <laughs> as a way for I can't remember how old the, this girl is supposed to be. I think like 11 or 12 or something like that. Like very young. Are they supposed uh, to be 11 or 12? I thought they were a little. They're in middle school. Yeah, they are middle yeah. school kids. So they would be what max 13 years old. Yeah, yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't quite know how the the school system works in Japan as far as ages, but yeah, she was definitely a middle school student. So you can assume North American standards, it would be between eleven and thirteen, basically. Jeez, I know. Yeah, I know. That's a great note to end off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, it's still a very, it's still a very good movie and a very interesting portrayal of of what tra- modern trans life is in Japan, and you know, it, it's still. 
a very difficult and uphill battle for people who are are trans and and trying to Mm -hmm. get the respect and rights that they deserve. And, you know, we we see in one scene where Nagisa goes for a job interview and she's basically... I don't know how to say it, but like the the man interviewing her is just so fascinated by her yeah. and not necessarily in a polite way. Um, and, and even in the way of like, they're interacting with the, the clients at the club. Uh, like there's one guy talk who's there with some female companions and talking about how these, these men are putting them to shame. They're way better dancers, all this sort of stuff. It's a very, it's a very, uneasy feeling watching the portrayal of how trans life is in Japan at times. Definitely. And I'm, I'm sure, I mean, you and I can't speak to this, but you know, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me again if this wasn't necessarily just an issue in Japan, but everywhere, you know, it's, it's, um, it's becoming more common to be out and to be kind of, uh, open about these types of things. Um, not to say that it all of a sudden trans people just existed in the last few years. Um, but I, you know, I mean, it, the road is a tough one. It's a challenge because we're not society in general, like I'd say around the world, we're not quite there yet in terms of being that accepting or, you know, that open to, to people who are unlike ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's move on to the next movie we want to talk about. So this is a document, the only documentary in the film festival, and it's called The Pursuit of Perfection. And it is a food documentary, which is usually, I think, the best type of documentary there is, because usually you get to watch some of the greatest food, and they have really beautiful shots of it. There was a great documentary last year at Hot Dogs called Come Back Anytime, which was about uh, a ramen house in Tokyo. And then, of course, there's the big kind of, uh, I would say, the most famous uh, food documentary from Japan, which is Jiro Dreams of Sushi. This is kind of um, attempting to go in the same vein as that, or at the very minimum capitalize off of, I think, Western audiences' um, appetite for Japanese cuisine and an interest in Japanese um, food culture. So this was uh, directed by, and I apologize if I pronounce it improperly, Toshimichi Sato. Um, And he decides to focus on four chefs in Japan, specifically in Tokyo's upscale food scene so it's all luxury and it's all uh it's not come back anytime it's not like a a quaint little ramen shop that's really sweet and comforting this is all very like michelin star very very high-end um food so we follow four chefs there's uh you know a two-star michelin or two michelin star sorry kaiseki restaurant there's a pastry chef and it's the only female um in the crew and she's actually one of the only few notable chefs in Japan um, who's a female, who's a female, who is female. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we have uh, an omasaki um, chef and uh, another Michelin star sushi restaurant um, by uh, Takaki Sugita. Um, and he's, he takes this, like each of them, the four of them basically take you behind the scenes of their restaurants 
and the types of food that they serve. Um, some of them go through the process, like even looking at the farming and where they get their produce from, those kinds of things. I had a bit of an issue with this documentary just simply because I thought it is a very, very short doc, first of all. It's only, I think, just over an hour, like maybe I think it's 80 minutes or something like that. Um, and it kind of operates like four separate vignettes. It doesn't have a through line across the four of the four uh, different chefs. Some of those stories behind the four are really interesting and you would want to dive into it a little bit more. But because there's a short runtime, because there's four of them, you literally just get glimpses into all four. And I pr would have preferred it if this were like a mini series almost and you could have you know, a solid 30, 45 minutes on each of them because they all have a very interesting story to tell and to get to the place that they've gotten to in um, a city as competitive as Tokyo when it comes to food. I find that interesting. Um, and it, uh, to me, it was a bit of a miss. And, you know, they called the the film The Pursuit of Perfection. And I kind of thought that there would be some sort of commentary or discussion about what perfection means and how these four in particular who are arguably working at the top of their fields have been trying to get this but there's not really you know there's no narrative throughout you're just it's literally just four profiles of four chefs and I found it a little bit wanting like it just didn't hit me in the same way that um, I think a good documentary could have. And I, I don't know if it's the stories of the four. Maybe they're just not as interesting as I think that they would be. Um, but yeah, I, I it kind of missed with me. How'd, how'd you like this one? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I really feel the same way. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Netflix series Chef's Table. Mm -hmm. It was created by the director of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And so if you like Jiro Dreams of Sushi you would really like chef's table. And if you've seen one, you should see the other chef's table is literally one of my favorite TV shows ever. I, I love, you know, I, I know it's a oft used phrase, but food porn, but <laughs> I, I, I sort of really love that look into a uh, food documentary style and, 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 and chef's table sort of really nailed down the format. It's sort of funny. I could, I can write out an episode right now where <laughs> you, 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 you figure out the highs of what the current chef is doing and then you find out their backstory and then you find out what their, their breaking point was where they needed to rebuild themselves and rebrand themselves and how they overcame it and how it influenced their menu. And then towards the end, it all sort of comes back together where you get shots of the different dishes and how that relates to their childhood, how they came up, what their, you know, their big struggle was, what they've done since they've made it big, all that. And it all sort of wraps up very neatly in this one hour segment. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Literally some of the most eye-watering, mouth-watering food you'll ever see in your life. And it isn't just, you know, the Michelin stars. It's, you know, people that work in food stands. It's people that have experimental restaurants, people that just want to work, you know, uh, at an airport restaurant sort of thing like that. It's all very varied. But this movie feels like it was trying to do the exact same format as that. And quite literally, I'm watching it. And I'm like, this feels a lot like chef's table. So I'm trying to like look up who's involved, who produced it, who financed it, the director, all this sort of thing. And I'm seeing no connection whatsoever. So I don't know if I missed something or not, but this really kind of feels like a chef's table ripoff and not in really a good way, unfortunately. Like you said, it's just sort of four vignettes. There's no really connecting through thread. 
you said during Midnight Swan, a lot of Japanese movies are really long. And I found that when I was like, oh, I got a couple hours. I should probably see what I can watch. Oh, this is two hours. This is two hours, two and a half hours, two and a half hours, over two hours, three hours. Oh, wow. Not doing that one. <laughs> uh, and then Pursuit of Perfection barely clocks in at an hour 20. Yeah. And this is a sort of thing where it really probably would have benefited if it was longer. It's just funny, isn't it? Because usually you very rarely these days japanese movie or not rarely you go i feel like this movie should be longer like you don't usually say that uh, but yeah i i mean it's unfortunate i think too one of the things i don't know if this bothered you about it but you know you mentioned in chef's table they don't just focus on the michelin star they focus on all sorts of mm-hmm. cuisine and restaurant stands different types of chefs in different capacities um whereas this one was i mean and it's kind of right from the outset they say it they don't try to hide it it is about the upscale the upper echelon the very luxurious food culture of tokyo the one Which that in itself is fine i am, i am interested in that as well yeah i see okay i i th- that was like kind of for me i had to take a step back at one point and say is it annoying me that everything here is not to say that like if i watch chef table i'm gonna go and visit every single place that they go to right like it's not that but it just kind of felt at some point some of these were just it felt very like boastful and just showing off like, yeah. okay, you know, like, oh, I, I trained with Joel Rubichon and it's like, yeah, good for you, buddy. Like I, you know, whatever. And, yeah. I, and I, but I had to, like, I tried to take a step back and say like, is it just me going, this is not my taste because even if I could afford to go to these Michelin star restaurants, I would not waste my money doing it because I, I personally don't really think it's worthwhile. Not like, I mean, not, I shouldn't say not all the time, but like, you know, it's just not my kind of thing. It's not my thing to go to restaurants that are saying like, oh, you have to make a reservation. Only five people get in every evening. You need yeah. to know somebody to get in. Like even, I think, I can't remember which restaurant it is. I think it's Yosuke Suga's. Yeah, yeah it was the woman's restaurant where it's only like a six person table. And she only if there's that, but there was an, night. there's like another one. So I actually went on the restaurant's websites for each of them. I was just oh, curious. Okay. And there was one, I think it's Yosuke Suga, who he is the one that worked under um, Joel Rubichon. And that one is like, you can't even make a reservation. Like you need to know somebody to get into that restaurant. Like you either need to know the chef, you need to know Suga or have some sort of connection to the restaurant in order to go eat there. And part of me is just like, get over yourself. (laughs) Like that's, that's not what food should be. Food shouldn't be this exclusive thing. Like food is a necessity of life and it should be something that you know, everybody gets to share in. And yeah. I'm not saying that we should all be able to go to Michelin star restaurants because then that would devalue what a Michelin star means, I suppose, um, in its own way. Although like there are t- plenty of Michelin stars that are like stalls and just mm-hmm. food stands as well. So it's not just these types, but the, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And so I, I really had to take a step back and just be like, am I not liking it? Because this is just not to my taste. But then I kind of looked at it a bit more I'm like, no, I think it's just like a not a very well constructed documentary in general regardless of what the content is i i think you know we've got these four stories and they're basically only about 20 minutes each once you break it mm-hmm. down yeah and and basically if the four stories the way they approach them was just one of the stories i think it would be a lot stronger because uh I, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher some of things because i don't have notes in front of me right now but like 
the first chef, we find out about how he got started. So we get that whole sort of backstory and what sort of led yes. him to where he was today about how he had to pick his location and move and all that sort of stuff. And then I he was the I one, remember. sorry, he was the one that started as the karate athlete, right? Yes. Like he had a, a really big thing into karate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I was kind of feeling like the chef's table sort of thing where they're sort of marrying the, mm-hmm. the, the past, the history with who the person is today. Uh, I can't really remember too much about the second chef. The third chef was, uh, was the woman. And so we get this story about how she's having to overcome hurdles today about being yes. a female chef and quote unquote, a celebrity chef, that sort of style in her branding and how she can be very popular, but she still has hurdles to face. And that was very interesting. And then the last chef, we get, uh, this guy who cares so deeply about his ingredients and we see him at the fish market and he knows exactly what are the right fish to have. And his cooks are always amazed by, Hey, this fish doesn't really look like much, but then when you cut it open, Oh my gosh, look how beautiful it is. Mm -hmm. This is Mm -hmm. phenomenal. This is the best tasting fish I've ever had. It's amazing. All those sort of things are very interesting, but because we only get one aspect per chef, it's it just sort of feels a bit like an incomplete picture where that's where I'm wanting more. If we just had the one chef who we learn about their background and how they got started and who they trained under and then what sort of struggles are they facing today and then how do they go about their day to achieve this pursuit of perfection, the way they shop for groceries, what's their relationship with food and nature and, and everything else, their their entire ecosystem, I think it would work a lot better. But because yeah. each one was so compartmentalized of you're only going to focus about this because you only have 20 minutes and then not only are you, you you sort of interviewing the chefs and showing the restaurant, you're also getting some talking heads as well, which basically just takes up airtime because we're not seeing more. They of the were so useless, point. weren't they? Those talking heads. Like, it, I I found them really useless. And I'm not trying to make this a race thing, but it was like just two white people talking. I'm like, why are we listening to these guys about this? It was it was very random for like a Japanese documentary and everything was in Japanese except for these two, like the only two talking heads yeah. um, were out of, I don't know, they, it's like New York or something, let's just say. And I just felt like, I'm like, I don't, I don't need to know from them what their reputation is because it's very yeah. clear. If you tell me you got you've earned two Michelin stars. Well, I get what your reputation then is, right? Like mm-hmm. if you tell me you own a restaurant that only caters to six people in, in at a time, I get what kind of success that you fought and what awards that you want. You know what I mean? Like we didn't need the talking heads and you're right. It just takes up airtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like we're, we're just kind of, <laughs> piling on now <laughs> yeah so so let's move on to the last movie that we both saw and it's a movie called it's a flickering life And it is a tale of love and friendship spanning a lifetime. The quote-unquote god of cinema that Go has worshipped since he was young will transcend time and work a miracle in the lives of one family. And this was directed by Yoji Yamada. This is a this is a very interesting one because it it 
it's a movie that takes place in, in, in two different timelines. You've got the, the modern day where you've got these, uh, this, this older couple who, you know, are approaching the end of their lives and are sort of struggling to, to make end meet. The husband go is a gambling addict and has loan sharks chasing after him. And so the, his wife and daughter give him an ultimatum of, you know, they take away his, his bank cards and his credit cards, and he can only use money he gets from his pension um, because that gets sent directly to him. And he should spend his days in the movie theaters because he used to work in the film industry back in the day. And then the flashback sequence, which is the other half of the movie, it's basically this three-way love triangle between um, between this married couple and how they met, but also Go's friend who worked as a film projectionist and was originally dating Go's wife for a while. Uh, so you've got this interesting sort of love triangle and then how it connects to today. And then eventually the friend is the owner of the cinema that Go goes to. So there's there's a lot of overlapping. And, and this is another movie where, where much like Midnight Swan, there was a lot of it that I really liked in some of it that that didn't quite work for me in the end. Uh, once again, I think length probably has something to do with it, where if it was maybe edited down a bit, I would probably uh, appreciate more and find it more concise. But overall, I thought it was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty enjoyable movie and one that was funny and had some good heart to it. What about you, Rachel? I liked it. I think it... Um... Let me see how to put this. I, it, it connected to me on a very personal way in some senses, just in terms of, uh, you know, the relationship between the the husband and the wife. And I like the back and forth going into like the old school um, Japanese kind of the golden era of Japanese cinema, like their version of that. And I enjoyed that. I agree with you. It, it was very long. Like it was a very long movie and they do throw everything and the kitchen sink into it. Um, but it's, it's very heartwarming and it's like, it can be kind of corny at times. Like there are moments that it is a little bit corny, but I think overall, I think it's a very heartwarming film and um i i've been trying to find the name of the actor but there was um another actor like a a a very popular actor in japan who was actually supposed to play the role of go but he unfortunately passed away of um covid very early on and he was one of the first kind of big names in japan to pass away from covid actually this was quite early days and during the pandemic um so the film kind of took on a bit more of a I don't say a personal level, um, but more of almost because it's looking back at cinema and this particular actor is, is a very um, well-known person within Japanese cinema. Um, I think it kind of took on a, a bit of a different meaning and a bit more heart and a bit more emotion just because of that. Not, I shouldn't say just because, cause he, he did pass away. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting film. And I think it's one of those um, just kind of an epic drama, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it, it, you know, we talk about uh, Midnight Swan doing well um, at the awards and things like that. And It's a Flickering Life is the same thing. It's done quite well in terms of um, nominations and recognition within the Japanese film industry. Yeah, it was uh, it was actually nominated for this year's Japanese Academy Award for Best Film, but uh, it lost to a, a little movie called Drive My Car, which basically swept the awards. <laughs> Which, God forbid! Oof. God forbid anything that I had to go up against drive my car. I mean, <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, too uh, bad. Interestingly enough, I don't know. Interestingly enough, the the part that 
didn't work the most for me was actually the love triangle. How, how did that aspect work for you? Hmm. Um, I wouldn't say it didn't not work for me. Like it wasn't anything that necessarily stood out to me, but I don't think it was something that I looked at and go, oh, I don't really like that. Like, you know, I think the the wife, she could have chosen a bit better. She probably should have chosen better. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's life. And I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, something that I think she obviously had a choice back then. I don't think they they didn't make it out to seem like she had to marry one over the other for any particular reason beyond who she was in love with. Um, but you know, it's something that I, I often talk a lot with, with friends and it's, it's about, you know, are that generation of women, um, feeling stuck in relationships and feeling like they can't, they can't move on for whatever reason, you know, whether it's a societal expectation or financial and economic considerations, things like that. And, um, it's an oddly a topic that has come up quite a bit in the last few months for no reason whatsoever um, with me yep, and my not. friendship group. Uh, like, honestly, nobody's parents are going through a divorce. Nothing is happening. It's just something that we've just been talking about. And <laughs> um, and this, like, I think that's why this kind of drove home a little bit for me was like this woman who, you know, I think they talk about she got cheated on and and he actually left at one point, right? Like he left her at some point and she yet she stood by even though when the gambling you know the 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 loan sharks would come by and try to collect on the debts and things like that she was the one who had to give up her money her wages um you know she was the one that was always at home and and when he was out doing whatever to whoever you know and and that kind of stuck with me so the the love triangle bit i guess when i think about it it kind of falls to the wayside and being a bit irrelevant um, because it doesn't actually come to fruition very much. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's not a big payoff to, to there being, um, a love triangle. It didn't take away from the movie for me though. It was just no, kind of there. Just, yeah. I just found it sometimes, uh, focusing a little bit too much on that. I guess, you know, maybe that was the whole point of the movie was, was the relationship aspect of it. Uh, it just got a little, a little too much at some points where they're like, no, you take her. No, you take her. No, yeah. you take her. You deserve her. And it was just like, okay, guys, maybe just ask the woman. Her. <laughs> they, I mean, and that, that is again, like, a, you know, it speaks to a generation of that, you know, hopefully this younger, our generation and, and, you know, younger than us, um, move beyond that kind of thinking, but I mean, it's very common still, even in the parents and our parents' generation to think like, you get to decide, you know, the woman is a property more or less. Like, oh, you take her. No, 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 I'll take her. Like, that, like something to fight over, if that, if that makes sense. You know, like it's, um, but you know, it, it is legit. I just think that now, now that you've mentioned it, I just think there wasn't really a payoff to it because it's not like it broke up a friendship. Spoiler mm. alert, didn't break up a friendship. Um, and they were all kind of just chilling together, even though, one was they were both clearly in love with her and she obviously chose the wrong. Maybe that, I mean, that's kind of the payoff, I suppose, is the fact that she led this life that was quite miserable at times and anybody watching it would just yell at her. I mean, at one point the daughter does yell at the mother and say like, why didn't you leave? What's wrong with you? Like, why would you just stay? And you kind of think, well, there was another man that maybe she would have had a much better life with had, had she gone with him. Um, but again, that, yeah, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't, uh, usurp the fact that they just kept saying, you take her, you take her, yeah, which is weird. Yeah. 
But the, I think the part that worked the best for me was actually, maybe it's because I work in the film industry. I love looking back and seeing what it was like filming movies. And, yeah. and I feel like they probably tried to make it as accurate as possible. I, it's funny when we first uh, see them watching this older movie. I thought it was a real older movie, so I'm googling. I'm like, <laughs> "What movie is this?" Because it clearly looked like there it was some sort of a play on like an Ozu movie or something like mm-hmm. that. And so I'm like, "Oh, what what movie is this?" And then like ten minutes later, they show literally them filming the scene that you saw on screen. I'm like, "Oh, it's made up for this movie." <laughs> but that they did a good job. Then they did a really good like, job. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> But I think they did such a good job of like make building that world and showing mm-hmm. how they they made movies, and then of course the whole projection aspect of yes. it, which is now a bygone era. I thought all that stuff was absolutely fascinating. I love the projectionist stuff. That was probably the thing that I enjoyed the most. Was just like I, they have a little comedic bit where like a, the the old he's an older gentleman and he's lifting up like this massive massive reel, and he just kind of does it. Whereas the young guy before him was like struggling to like lift up, and then the guy's yeah. just like just get out of here. Like, let me let me lift this real quick. I think he like drops it on his toe or something. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. It's such an obvious comedic bit, but it still was it really was, funny. Yes. I still enjoyed it. It was still very funny. Um yeah, I, I like the projectionist stuff in particular. Like I it makes me sad that we don't really do that anymore. Like movie theaters, you just I suppose they just push a button and and there there she goes. But yeah, mm-hmm. I remember like it it's something that I don't I don't even think about like what was the last time that you saw a movie I mean, every now and then you can go watch movies that are on film still. Like in, uh, if you're in Toronto, like Tiff Lightbox, they they always mm-hmm. do um, film reels and things like that. But like, yeah, special just, 35 or 70 millimeters. Yeah, millimeters. exactly. But like, just the last time that you were in a movie theater, just like a normal theater and not a special one, and you just watch movies and they had, you know, Fast and the Furious on on film. Like that's you know, it, you kind of forget about that, and then you. It made me think back to like being a kid and sometimes the the reel would stop or something was wrong and you the mm-hmm. projectionist would have to come in and like fix it and doing that and you forget that that was like a, a proper job like that required a lot of training and you know even though they were teenagers a lot of them were teenagers doing it like they still had to know what they were doing like it was a quite a, spe- a specific vocation at the time mm-hmm. and now it's obviously gone yeah yeah which is a, which is a real shame it is uh, yeah. watching this movie also <laughs> kind of reaffirmed that like my life goal would be to own my own boutique movie theater where I get to program what I want to watch. Basically. I'd love to do that too. That'd be amazing. That it's like, that is a pretty sweet gig to have to like, yeah. Yeah. To curate your own film, like film catalogs and I don't know, learn how to be a projectionist as well. You could try to do that. That'd be cool. I, uh, and then of course they, they showed the reality of what it's like owning your own independent movie theater today, where they almost shut down at the end. If it isn't for, uh, the guy winning a grant and donating the money that they're probably, they're probably still going to shut down anyways within a year, yeah. but you know, it prolongs it a little bit. Uh, I, I am, I'm always distracted now when, when movies try to incorporate COVID and, mm-hmm. and I didn't think it was necessary, uh, other than the having to leave space in the theater between seats it wasn't really needed for me i'm still of two minds about that because on one hand you know it was set in i don't know if actually it was i'm trying to think back now was it set specifically in 2020 2022 or 2021 or whatever something like um, that because there's a scene where they're watching the news and they're talking about the virus right 
I don't know, to me, if you're going to set a movie and the time period is 2020, 2019, 2021, I just said that way out of order, 2019 to 2021, (laughs) if you are going to set a movie during that time, it does feel weird to not do that then. Like to me, you're making a choice because then, because that's what it was. Do you know what I mean? Like that would be like setting a movie in 1940 and just being like, there was no world war. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Like things were fine. <laughs> it's just, it was a, it's, it's a massive thing that happened in the world. And I think maybe we're just too close to it. Like maybe there hasn't been enough time has to pass for us to, to look back on it with a bit more, I don't want to say nostalgia because nostalgia is positive, but like to look back on it with thinking like, yeah, that that's what it should be. Um, yeah, I don't know. I to me it it just seems something too big to ignore and too big to say, you know, let's let's just not include any of that and act as if it didn't happen. Yeah, I, I'm not too sure. But either way, I thought it was a really fun and enjoyable movie, especially if you if you enjoy the aspect of inside baseball behind the scenes, mm-hmm. movie making, that sort of stuff was really fascinating. The period piece scenes i think were probably my favorite uh they were a little more more subtle and grounded in reality but still an overall uh, a very very light uh and enjoyable movie i agree and um i think the next movie we can segue into that really nicely because it, it was also a covid movie so there you go um this is one that you didn't get to watch uh i saw this actually in the festival um not cushy uh, cushy not on my house cushion at home being very comfortable uh, and it's called ribbon and it is the directorial debut of a japanese actress named non n-o-n and it's set basically right at the beginning of the pandemic um the first few shots are she is an art student um, in her final year of school and they have a big art project or a big showcase let's say like a a kind of a gallery for their end of year projects and the opening shots are all of them wearing masks and many of them destroying their art projects because everything's been canceled so they're not having the showcase anymore school's been canceled um they all have to go home most of them don't have room to store their art pieces if if they're really big structures or massive paintings and things like that. So a lot of them had to destroy it. And it shows the it's not it's not hiding the frustration that a younger generation had about what was going on then. Um, and the whole film, it follows this young girl who uh, is living on her own. Um, in the middle of the, the, you know, the, the countrywide lockdowns in Japan um, and just about what she went through and kind of like the creativity that her creativity slumping and just not finding any motivation to do anything, waking up at 12 o'clock in the afternoon because um, she had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And, and, you know, this one does take a bit of a satirical look at overkill of PPE and, uh, you know, the six feet, like at one point her parents come to visit and her mom is just completely decked out in or just a ridiculous amount of, it's not even real PPE. And if you're Asian, <laughs> like your mother probably did the same thing too. It's just like, it's, it was ridiculous. And then her father comes by with literally a six foot pole and he's like walking around trying to shove people away from him to be like, this is six feet. You need to, you need to back up kind of thing. Um, and 
I love this movie. I genuinely really, really loved it. And I, I almost kind of wish I had gotten a screener for this versus going in because I, w- I would have watched it again um, if I had a screening link to it. It's just, I, I think about the COVID pandemic period quite a bit and just the way that it's changed the world. And I think you and I in particular, Dakota, like we're kind of lucky in our age that we're not in our early to mid twenties and going through this. Cause I actually think that's probably the crappiest age to have to go through all this nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you couldn't go travel. You couldn't go do the stupid things that you're supposed to be doing when you're in your twenties. Cause you got to be home and you got to be safe and, you know, taking care of others and things like that. Um, and this one in particular looks, this movie in particular looks at um, art students. So like people who are working in the creative businesses and, and industries and, I don't know. I I just, I really felt a good connection with the film and just, I like that it's a coming of age tale set during this time period. Um, And, you know, just kind of shines a light on the fact that there is for as much as we should all be obviously very grateful that you have your health and that, you know, your loved ones are still here. Even beyond that, there's a lot of people who just years have been taken from them. I guess all of us years have been taken from taken from us because of this. Um, but for some people, the degree that has impacted their life is a bit more than others. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like a really heartfelt movie. It's very, very funny at times as well, um, which I enjoyed. And like we were just saying with It's a Flickering Life, like maybe we haven't had enough space but I was thinking about that movie um, with Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor. The, mm, the name of it. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Thank you. Lockdown. So they make jokes about like, oh, toilet paper, you know, everyone's buying it up and things. But that came out in, I believe, I want to say like November 2020. And it yeah. was not a great time for a movie like that to come out because I don't think the vaccine was available yet. Things were still really bad. But now maybe I think we've gotten enough space that we can laugh at it. Like when you see the man with the six foot pole, like it is funny because it's it's just showing us we were very paranoid and very ridiculous at that time. And, yeah, you know, maybe we can kind of laugh at ourselves. But I mean, I don't know. There might be other people who watch it and go too soon. Right. But I, I personally found it very amusing. And. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. And it's it's the first time director, as I said already. And um, that was the actual the only reason I wanted to watch it was because I enjoy seeing what first time directors do. Um, and it seems that non I was looking it up, she has so much support in the Japanese film industry. Um, so there were a lot of people uh, like very well respected and very well known um, figures in the Japanese film industry who helped her out with this movie, um, including the, the actors who played her parents. Um, they're quite big shots in Japan. So I think that that's really cool. And I, I would love to see whatever she comes out with next. Interesting. Well, that's good. Yeah. I'm sad. I missed that one. Then the movie I want to talk about very, very briefly uh, that I saw was a movie called the past last days of the samurai. It was directed by Takashi Kozumi. And it's about the last samurai who led an army of 690 against an enemy of 50,000. In 1867, political power returned to the emperor, and 260 years of the Tokugawa shogunate came to an end, resulting in the domains being divided either into the Eastern Army or the Western Army. And it keeps going on because it's a very long IMD plot summary, so I'm <laughs> not going to keep reading it. The This was one I was very excited for because uh, I love samurai movies, 
And so I, I kind of the first thing I did when I when I saw the the TJFF program I was like, oh, okay, what samurai movies do they have this year? So I saw this one. I was very excited. And the blurb about it says that the director, Koizumi, uh, was a protege of Akira Kurosawa. He worked as a assistant director on Ron. And so I was like, ooh, okay, all right. I like the pedigree here. I'm a big Kurosawa fan. He's got the samurai. This all really sounds right up in my alley. And they're advertising it not necessarily as a action epic but instead more of a political drama i was like okay that's kind of a unique twist on the samurai genre unfortunately i feel really bad because it just didn't really hold my attention i i struggled with this one i had to watch it in in small parts because i just wasn't able to stay hooked into it my biggest issue might be because i am not japanese i don't know how popular or well-known the history of of this era of Japan is. But I had no idea what was happening. There's a very brief introduction at the beginning of, hey, this is what's happening in the world of Japan. Um, You know, there's outside Western forces that are trying to exude power over the country, and this is how the country is sort of reacting both at a macro and micro levels and, and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm with you a little bit. Don't really know this, this history, but that's fine. I'm sure you'll explain it to me. The problem was it's one of those movies that just goes too in depth with some of the information. And, and I'm, I just didn't know what any of it meant. None of it like had any sort of bearing with me. Like at least like if it's a world war two movie, I'm like, okay, I got a general idea of, you know, what was happening in Germany and, and Poland and England and the U S Japan. I know all that sort of information of what's going on geopolitically, but this, I just had no reference points and it probably really hurt my ability to enjoy the film. That's interesting that that would, cause I know how in, into it you are. So it's kind of interesting that there's, like you, you would you wouldn't be able to grasp onto it. So like it must be like a very, very, very niche kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like because I would say you have more knowledge than the average bear about this kind of stuff. And yeah, so if you're saying that, I probably would have been completely lost. Yeah, and and I don't know. Maybe it was just the fact that it was a little too talky. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know it, you know, advertising it as a political drama, I, I, that's what I found interesting. But unfortunately, I feel like it went too far into that and even left some of the political stuff to just be a family drama at times, which kind of really deviated from the plot. And so I was like, wait, and so who is this person? How are they related? Okay, they're, so they're bowing to this person. So they're, they're somehow a lower rank or subservient to them or they're their elder. Are they related? What's exactly going on here? So I don't know if I just like every once in a while was, was missing key details or what. It was shot beautifully. I really liked the look of it. I thought the performances were quite strong. It just... It just didn't connect with me, and maybe maybe it was me uh, a problem with me, and not necessarily the movie. I don't quite know, but I feel bad that I didn't enjoy, it, even though you know, looking at it beforehand, it checked all the boxes for me. I mean, it happens sometimes, right? Like, I mean, we could go back. I'm not. We're not going to keep piling on to the pursuit of perfection, but it, that, like, even when you look at that on paper, I think both of us were very drawn to that film, right? And it just kind of doesn't work. Sometimes it just doesn't work. And yeah, what are you going to do? Like say la vie, right? Like there's so many things that work really nicely on paper or they don't like you can read a synopsis and be like, 
I don't, I don't see why I would be interested in this in the slightest. And then you actually watch it and it's quite good. It's the joy of film in case you didn't the know. Joy the joy of it. film. It's the joy of film. I think, I think that is a great wrapping up point. <laughs> Thank you for that segue. No problem. We should end every episode on some just deep thought. It's the joy of film. <laughs> That's what we should be doing. Rachel, where can people find you and what are you working on? Uh, find me at rachelkh.com. Uh, in terms of what I'm working on, I suppose in keeping with this episode, um, I did write a few reviews um, for some of the films that we talked about, some that we didn't. Uh, and I believe they're over. One is at Exclaim and a few over at that shelf. So that'd be good to check out and also you know both of us had done stuff for last year's festival as well um there's some other i I like the toronto japanese film film festival um i like that because it's not the easiest thing in the world sometimes to see uh movies especially um newer films um in toronto if you're not if they're not canadian or american or or british films Uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world to, to catch them so it's it's nice that we have this chance yeah, I, I really enjoy getting to cover this festival. It's it's a fun way, like you said, to experience cinema that we, we just don't really get. Like, you, you look at the types of movies that are nominated for the, the Japanese Academy Awards, and outside of, of Drive My Car, I don't think any of those movies were really released at all over here on, on streaming platforms and theaters, things like that. So this is a fantastic way to get involved in international cinema. And if you like Japanese movies, stuff like Drive My Car, you would definitely be into the the movies that are, are playing at the Toronto Japanese Film Festival. I know it's already over, but next year, hopefully people check it out. I did a preview piece for the festival and, and hopefully people checked it out and maybe saw some movies that they were interested in as well. And I think some of these movies will be getting um, a VOD release as well in Canada. Like I know Baby Assassins, I mentioned it quite briefly, but that is getting a film release, um, a VOD release specifically. So every now and then these movies do get like some form, especially now with digital, right? Like it's a lot easier for them to to have them come out to the rest of the world, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I will link to your reviews in the show notes for people to read as well. But you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And uh, if you saw any movies during this year's Toronto Japanese Film Festival, send us an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all the episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.